Good evening. Were two gas pipelines connecting Russia to Germany sabotaged? And who done it? Ian slams into Florida with mega rains and flash flooding. Biden forgets a dead congressperson. What's on top of his mind? Mayor Adams explains the move at Rikers, and pot dealers of color demand the state enforce the law. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Wednesday, September 28, 2022. Mysterious explosions this week, cutting two controversial gas pipelines connecting Russia and Germany under the Baltic Sea, were caused by deliberate action, according to Denmark. Danish Prime Minister Meta Frederiksen said Tuesday is the authorities' clear assessment that these are deliberate actions, not accidents. But she added, there's no information indicating who could be behind it. The mystery has Ukraine blaming Russia, Russia blaming the United States, and the White House mum. White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre today. There is an investigation underway. Attacks on critical infrastructure of our European and NATO allies is a matter of concern for us. We will continue to be vigilant on this and coordinate with our allies and partners. But again, the investigation, as we understand it, is going to take some time, and it's, uh, it's underway. Has there been a shift in the U.S. security posture in the region because of the allegations of potential sabotage? Uh, don't have anything to share on any shift of security posture in the region. We take this very seriously, and this is of concern to us. We're going to let the investigation happen, uh, occur. It's going to take some time, and we will be there for our European partners and allies and also our NATO allies. And State Department spokesperson Ned Price said blaming the United States is ridiculous. The idea that the United States was in any way uh, involved in the apparent sabotage of these pipelines is preposterous. Uh, It is nothing more than a function of Russian disinformation and should be treated as such. The two pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and 2, are owned by a German company, but they move natural gas originating in Russia. The first explosion was recorded early Monday southeast of the Danish island of Bornholm. Later that night, a second, stronger blast northeast of the island was equivalent to a powerful earthquake. One report claims the blast could be equivalent to a mine between 250 and 500 pounds in size. The blast created a foaming spot in the sea where natural gas spewed out. The pipelines aren't in use but are kept pressurized with gas. Nord Stream 1 was cut by Germany when Russia invaded Ukraine. Nord Stream 2 was never started because of the war. The attacks coincide with the inauguration of the Baltic pipeline connecting Norway with Poland. The Nordstrom pipelines were a sticking point in relations between Europe and the United States. In January, Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland had a warning for Russia. With regard to Nord Stream 2, uh, we continue to have uh, very strong and clear conversations uh, with our German allies. And I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, One way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. And President Joe Biden had similar ominous words. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there will be, uh, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, We will bring an end to it. But but how will you how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? 
we will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. The news editor for Antiwar.com is David DeCamp. He says it's a whodunit, and the clues point to Washington. Vladimir Putin pretty recently was saying that these pipelines, which run from Russia to Germany, you have the Nord Stream 1 and the Nord Stream 2 that were both hit. He said pretty recently that if Europe needs gas, they should open up these pipelines because Germany paused the Nord Stream 2 after Russia invaded. We don't know who did it, uh, it, just to say that up front, but there's definitely, you know, if we were investigating a crime or a murder, let's say, we know that the U.S. had some motive to do it, at least. German media Der Spiegel reported that the CIA kind of gave a vague warning to Germany over the summer that there might be this attack, and that seemed to be confirmed by the New York Times today. Before the war, before Russia invaded President Biden, Victoria Nuland, the Undersecretary of State, they both said, if Russia invades Ukraine, the Nord Stream 2 is done. We're going to end it one way or another. We're going to figure out a way to stop it. There's just a lot of reason to suspect the U.S. Didn't Biden say that too? Didn't Biden make a direct threat? Yeah, President Biden said that himself because— He said, if Russia invades, we're going to end this pipeline. And a reporter asked, well, how are you going to do that? Because it's controlled by Germany. And he said, oh, I forget what the exact quote was, but he said, oh, we'll see to it or, you know, it'll it'll happen. Something like that. So, yeah, there's definitely reason to suspect them. And there was a Polish uh, member of European Parliament who on Twitter appeared to just say that 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 the US was behind it. Uh, Radek Sikorski, he's he's a member of European Parliament, former Polish foreign minister. He he wrote on Twitter, uh, he posted a picture of the gas disturbances at the surface of the Baltic Sea and said, "Thank you USA." And he's a total Russia hawk and you know, he's happy about this attack. Um, so he is hinting that the US was responsible. He hasn't walked back that tweet. I've seen him in replying in other places saying it was a hypothesis so he might just be guessing but still i think that's pretty important and that's ignored in the mainstream coverage of it why does the united states have so much hostility towards these pipelines Nord Stream really would have doubled Russia's capacity to sell gas to germany and it really represented you know sort of a future where russia was more integrated with europe and there's more co- cooperation there it was a big part of it they just didn't want that trade relationship to expand so much as, uh, you know, NATO and and having this military presence in Europe is very important to the U.S. control in that part of the world. And if you just look at it on paper, while the U.S. has over 30,000 troops in Germany under, you know, the idea is that they're there to protect them from Russia, but then you have Germany buying all this gas. It just doesn't really uh, jive with, you know, the U.S.'s uh, goals in Europe. The Trump administration tried to stop it. Biden tried to stop it. But they failed. The construction was completed, and then it was put on pause after the invasion. Um, So now seeing this uh, attack, whoever did this doesn't want this gas to go to Germany, to go to the the EU. Is this the end of the Nord Stream pipeline? Um, Can it be repaired? Will it be repaired? Is the relationship between Europe and Russia over? At this point, I still haven't seen exactly the the operator of Nord Stream, Nord Stream AG. The last I saw them say was that they're not sure they can't assess yet how long it would take to repair this damage. So I'm not sure there. And when it comes to the European-Russian relationship, I mean, it seems like at this point, it's not winter yet, but Europe's going to have a very harsh winter with the energy prices it's dealing with because of these sanctions on Russia. Kind of the best thing we could hope for to see Europe's policy change toward Russia is if the 
people kind of get fed up with it and we're seeing more protests in Europe and governments are changing. The United States is going to fight this war to the last drop of your blood. Yeah, I mean, that's what it seems like the policy is. And, uh, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, the Republican from South Carolina, he's basically said that before. He's like, the Ukrainians are willing to fight to the last Ukrainian, so let's keep funding this war. David DeCamp is news editor for antiwar.com. Plunging Russian gas supplies have caused prices to soar in Europe, where countries have struggled to find alternative supplies of energy used to heat homes, generate electricity, and run factories. Europeans are expecting a long, cold winter. And there was rare bipartisan support on Capitol Hill today around a bill allowing the United States to prosecute war criminals who enter the country, even if they didn't target Americans. The bill comes in the wake of reports of atrocities being committed by Russian troops in areas retaken by Ukraine during a recent counteroffensive. The Justice for Victims of War Crimes Act also seeks to remove the existing five-year statute of limitations for war crimes. Sponsor Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois grilled Department of Homeland Security Assistant Director Andrew Watson about reports of more than a thousand war criminals already residing in this country. Department of Homeland Security is currently pursuing more than 1,700 leads of perpetrators of war crimes and crimes against humanity and other human rights violations from approximately 75 different countries. 1,700 leads of people who are living right here in the United States. These are the known leads. The actual number may be just even higher. The investigations take time um, because more often than not, it requires an extensive workup. Uh, most of these events occur over a period of time, and the challenge is that, one, we have to identify and locate witnesses, and sometimes those witnesses are OCONUS outside of the United States. So we'll have our regional support teams and field agents that will need to travel, conduct interviews, gather evidence, and then from there present that evidentiary material and or witness findings to an assistant United States attorney for determination as to whether or not criminal charges are viable. The United States currently requires sending alleged war criminals back to their country of origin, but in the case of Russian soldiers, that could mean freedom. So the United States wants to conduct any war crimes trials involving Russia here. In more war news, Moscow is ready to annex parts of Ukraine after voters in four occupied regions supported joining Russia. The referenda were condemned by Ukraine and its allies. Ukraine's foreign ministry asked the European Union, NATO, and the Group of Seven Industrial Nations, used to be the Group of Eight before Russia was kicked out, to step up pressure on Russia with new sanctions and more military aid to Kyiv. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said the four areas that voted to join Russia will remain part of Ukraine at the top. Uh, first, Russia has now announced the pre-baked results of its sham referenda. These results were concocted in Moscow, not collected in Ukraine. Let's be clear. The results are completely fabricated and do not reflect the will of the people of Ukraine. This is the will of Moscow, not the free will of Ukraine or its people. Because we've seen this movie before, we know what will come next. We expect Russia to use these sham referenda as a false pretext to attempt to annex Ukraine's territory. But no matter what President Putin and his enablers try to claim, these areas are and will remain part of Ukraine. Ukraine has every right to continue to defend its sovereignty and its territorial integrity. The United States will never recognize Russia's attempts to annex parts of Ukraine. Quite the opposite. We will continue to work with allies and partners to bring even more pressure on Russia and the individuals and entities that are helping support its attempted land grab. 
You can expect additional measures from us in the coming days. Officials in the four regions say they'll ask Russian President Vladimir Putin to incorporate the provinces into Russia on the basis of the announced vote results. Ukraine's government says it won't participate in any more peace talks with Russia because of the annexation. And in the Western Hemisphere, Hurricane Ian, one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in the United States, swamped southwest Florida on Wednesday, turning streets into rivers, knocking out power to two million people and threatening catastrophic damage further inland. Hey guys, um, this is the current condition in my house. God hope you never have to see this at your house. What we all fear in life come true today. So, God bless everybody out there trying to uh, make it through this, and I hope you make it through all right. So, see you on the other side. Um, did you get that thing over there? There's like three boats. <gasps> no, there's four there's boats. Four of them. Four boats. Holy crap. That's why you don't go outside. The Category 4 storm slammed the coast with 150-mile-an-hour winds and pushed a wall of water inland. Videos posted on social media showed massive surges of water flooding the streets of Fort Myers and Naples. Yachts and other large boats were being dragged far inland by the storm surge that rose 10 feet in some places. In one video, whole houses floated away. About 2.5 million people were ordered to evacuate southwest Florida before Ian hit, but by law no one could be forced to flee. National Hurricane Center Director Jamie Rome made this report a few hours ago. But the story I really want to start hounding now is the flooding potential. The flooding potential along the I-4 corridor of Florida. Look at this. If you've been following along, these numbers have gone up now in excess of 20 inches potential from about Tampa or the, the 20 inches is in around Orlando, but 10 plus inches from Tampa to Orlando back to Jacksonville, which is why we have a high risk, a high risk for excessive rainfall or flooding. A high risk for flooding along these areas. You're not going to want to be driving around tomorrow because the roads could be flooded. Very, very, very dangerous. So please, please be safe over the next couple of days. National Hurricane Center Director Jamie Rome. In Washington, President Biden was addressing a conference on combating hunger and food insecurity when he assured Floridians the federal government would be there to help. I made it clear to the governor and the mayors that the federal government is ready to help in every single way possible. And I want to repeat what I said yesterday to the people of Florida. The storm is incredibly dangerous, to state the obvious. It's life-threatening. Evacuate when ordered. Be prepared. Storm warnings are real. The evacuation notices are real. The danger is real. And when the storm passes, the federal government is going to be there to help you recover. We'll be there to help you clean up and rebuild, to help you get Florida get moving again. And we'll be there at every step of the way. That's my absolute commitment to the people of the state of Florida. And if you forgive me, I want to add one more warning. That's warning to the oil and gas industry executives. Do not, let me repeat, do not. Do not use this as an excuse 
to raise gasoline prices or gouge the American people. In related news, the governors of Virginia, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina all preemptively declared states of emergency. Forecasters predicted Ian will turn toward those states as a tropical storm, likely dumping more flooding rains into the weekend after crossing Florida. Ian's strength at landfall tied it for the fifth strongest hurricane when measured by wind speed to strike the U.S. And despite some legislative victories as the United States heads into its midterm elections in November, President Biden, who is 79, has been challenged on his age and mental acuity after several gaffes. Today, as he introduced legislative supporters of his program to combat hunger, Biden asked if Indiana Representative Jackie Walorski was in the room. The only difficulty, Walorski and two aides died in a car accident in August. And I want to thank all of you here for including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was was going to be here to help make this a reality. When Walorski died last month, a White House statement from Biden said he and First Lady Jill were shocked and saddened by her sudden accident. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said when asked about the incident later, Walorski was on top of mind for the president. I don't find that confusing. I mean, I think many people can speak to sometimes when you have someone top of mind, they're a top of mind, exactly that. Uh, And it is also, if you put it into the context, it's not like it happened without, outside of context, right? It happened at an event uh, where we were, um, uh, champ- we were calling out the champions, uh, congressional champions in particular, of this uh, issue, this important issue uh, when it comes to food insecurity, something that this administration has led on, led uh, on uh, from the beginning of this administration. John Lennon, okay. top of mind just about every day, but I'm not looking around for him anywhere. When you sign a bill for John Lennon, Lennon has president, then we can have this conversation. Okay, go ahead. 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 There are reports that Treasury Secretary Yellen is looking to leave. It is not your turn to speak, and you're being rude to your colleagues, and let your colleague answer the question. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre today. And in more national news, young people across the nation know it as the morning after pill, the pill a woman can take the morning after discovering she might have had sex with a guy she didn't want to have a baby with. Now there's a new version of the morning after pill. It's the same pill, but with a new name. Julie, in a blue box with pink lettering meant to end the stigma of emergency contraception. The product will be available in Walmarts across the country. The morning after pill doesn't cause an abortion and is illegal in all 50 states. It'll sell for about $43. It's the brainchild of Julie Schott and Brian Bordanik, who are credited with reducing the stigma around acne and breakouts. And closer to home, tonight, the city of New York has been spraying pesticides on much of downtown Manhattan, including Battery Park, the Civic Center, Financial District, Greenwich Village, and Washington Square Park. The pesticide spraying program in New York City is aimed to kill mosquitoes said to be carrying West Nile virus, and it began in 1999 under Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Opponents say the 
pyrethroid pesticides being sprayed have been shown to be harmful to human health and the health of the ecosystem by killing off natural predators of mosquitoes, including dragonflies and bats. In 2021, a new pesticides bill passed the New York City Council unanimously. It was intended to reduce the use of pesticides, but the New York City Department of Health issued itself waivers to the law. After the city lost a lawsuit in 2006, it was forced to negotiate with anti-spray activists. Nevertheless, they say the city continues to spray. In more local news, Mayor Eric Adams addressed the continuing crisis posed by tens of thousands of migrants arriving in New York City by the busload again today. He defended his use of a tent to house 1,000 migrants in the parking lot of Orchard Beach in the Bronx, saying it was only temporary and not a way to get around a court order to provide shelter for the unhoused. We have to separate the two. We have a shelter um, uh, obligation that we're fulfilling every day, you know, everyone knows that. And we have a migrant asylum seeker crisis. It is our belief that we need to treat this like the crisis that it is. This is a, no one thought that we would be receiving over 13,000 people for, for housing. And so we are going to treat everyone in humane fashion, but these are two different entities. This is a crisis of migrant and asylum seekers, and that is how we're responding to it. And in more city news, this year has been tragic at Rikers Island and the New York City jail system. 16 prisoners have died in New York City jails this year alone, as much as all of last year. In an article earlier this week, the New York Times reported Corrections Commissioner Louis Molina told senior staff to ensure a dying man was off the department's count, apparently to lessen the impact of another death at the facility. Hours later, Elmore Robert Pondexter was granted compassionate release, taken off life support. He died of heart failure at Bellevue Hospital. At a news conference today, Mayor Adams says Commissioner Molina was just trying to show compassion for the stricken inmate. What happens, and I, and I, hope, I hope the paper does a follow-up, you know, because the way we are given the impression of what... Uh, Commissioner Molina did, it's just sending the wrong message. This Commissioner Molina is probably uh, the most compassionate commissioner we've ever had in the Department of Correction. So he used a technical term to say um, to get the person uh, off the, the corrections count, meaning when we were, when you get that person off the corrections umbrella of care, of compassionate care, you are now allowing family members to go visit him, be around him or her in a dignified manner without correction officers all around. The person is at the end of his life. The Legal Aid Society criticized the mayor and Commissioner Molina, accusing the city of a lack of transparency when it comes to ill prisoners and their treatment in the city jail system. And finally, it's smoking hot in New York City, just weeks away from granting the first licenses to operate local cannabis joints for the first time since pot was legalized in 2021. But some advocates say the spirit of the law legalizing weed is being violated by big money operators who've jumped the gun by running mobile pot trucks and opening marijuana clubs that offer cannabis in return for donations. The law was meant to make up for decades of harsh enforcement policies targeting the poor and people of color. Now the state has ordered the more moneyed investor-driven pot establishments to close up shop and give people in the community a fair chance. Pot lawyer Stanley Cohen spoke with the news about righting the wrongs of the war on drugs. There are 25 white investors from the Hamptons trying to open smoke shops, smoke clubs, smoke businesses, 
to circumvent five years worth of actually 10 years worth of struggle to get a marijuana retail and cannabis growing law passed in New York with a 50% priority for communities of color, communities of need, and people who have gone to prison for pot in the past, and with special training programs and investment funds which loan startup money to targeted communities and targeted individuals. And what you have is you got, you got uh, Karma Carl and uh, Nirvana Nick from the Hamptons that are coming into New York City and opening large spots or trying to open large spots, driving the market into non-existence, killing communities of color that have struggled to get this legislation passed, hurting people of color that have gone to prison over pot in the past, and the state is doing exactly what I predicted the state would do. What's that? They didn't go up to people on the street and say, hey, Bobby, stop selling pot for $20. That's not what they've been doing. What the state has started to do is they, they serve 65 cease and desist orders on large operations, including multiple clubs. You pay an annual dues, you walk into the club, you sit down, and you get to pick from the menu. The dues are like $1,000 a year, and you get free marijuana and food, and you hang out. That's not legal now. It's not a question of not legal. Of course they're not legal, but the, here's, what, here's, here's the situation. Marijuana sales have essentially been decriminalized completely. What the state is doing that's involved with the licensing procedure, which, as I said, has a 50% focus on communities of color, communities of need, communities of large unemployment, and mm. persons who have gone to prison for pot to get priority placements. Uh-huh. So what they're doing is they're going to clubs, they're going to businesses, they're going to large serves. So look, you got to stop this shit. And if you don't stop it, if you have a, a club that has a, a, a license, we're going to go after the license. If you keep going, we're going to start seeking civil penalties and fines that could run into tens or twenties and thirties of thousands of dollars a day. And if that doesn't work, well, then we're going to go to seize property. I was involved in a case, I'm no longer, where three times a week, 2,000 pounds, the case is done, 2,000 pounds of marijuana was coming into from, from the West Coast to New York, and 5 to $10 million was getting on the truck and going back to the West Coast. Sounds like mom and pop, huh? I mean, Paul, my position's very clear. I've been a lawyer since 1983. I've had clients get life sentences in the feds because of their third pot conviction. I've seen people go to prison for 20 years over pot. I've seen kids with an ounce of pot who can't make $500 bail sit in jail for three days, get released, bench warrant, and then end up in jail for a year. You know, so my my position is you got to decriminalize it you got to prioritize the communities that have been f***ed over and the people that have been hurt, and you got to make sure they get a leg up and a priority. That's been my position for years. Pot lawyer Staley Cohen spoke with the news. Cannabis is legal to possess and even grow up to a limit in New York, and potheads say the world hasn't ended yet as they take another toke. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. The news was produced, written, and anchored by me, Paul Durienzo. You can get the latest edition of the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>